0: It is my great pleasure to welcome you this evening to this exciting and very timely discussion on philosophy in the age of democracy. What do philosophers do and what can philosophical thinking achieve? What is the relation between philosophy and other disciplines and between philosophy and politics? What role can or should philosophy play in the democratic nation state? What is a philosophical education? And what can philosophy contribute to contemporary life? These are the questions that we'll be discussing this evening with professors Richard Eldridge and Paul Redding. Richard Eldridge is the Charles and Harriet Cox McDowell Professor of Philosophy at Swarthmore College in the USA. He specializes in aesthetics and theory of criticism, philosophy of language, philosophy of mind, philosophy and literature, German idealism, and Wittgenstein. His recent publications include Stanley Cavell and Literary Studies, The Oxford Handbook of Philosophy and Literature, and Literature, Life, and Modernity. Paul Redding is an A.R.C. Dora Fellow in the Philosophy Department here at the University of Sydney. He works on the continental idealist tradition in philosophy and its relation to contemporary movements. He's the author of Hegel's Hermeneutics, The Logic of Affect, Analytic Philosophy and the Return of Hegelian Thought, and Continental Idealism, Leibniz, to Nietzsche. I am Dalia Nassar, an ARC DECRA fellow in the philosophy department here at the University of Sydney, and I will be chairing tonight's session. Richard and Paul will each discuss the theme of philosophy in the age of democracy. I will then ask them some questions, and this will be followed by a discussion with the audience. So please join me in welcoming Richard Eldridge.
1: Thank you, Dahlia, and thank you to Paul and Meredith and the other organizers for including me in this event, uh, and thanks to the audience for reasons that I hope will become evident uh, for your uh, attentions tonight. Uh, Like many teachers of philosophy, I've thought about this topic for a long time continuously in conversations with colleagues at my home institution. After all, the US does have pretensions to being a democracy at least. Um, but I'm very eager to hear thoughts and reactions from an engaged public of grown-ups outside a classroom. As will become evident and easy to follow, my talk comes in two parts. The first part considers Plato's highly critical yet perceptive account of democratic life as well as Plato's solution to the problems of that life, a solution that I think we cannot and should not accept. Part two then considers how to avoid the evils Plato sees in democratic life, but by other means. Uh, I have four suggestions to make about how to achieve and maintain a healthy democratic life and about the place of philosophy in doing that. So here goes. From his own time to the present, Plato has done as much or more than anyone else to set the public image of philosophy. The Republic is still the single most commonly taught text in primary source introductory philosophy classes around the world. Much of that text turns on a contrast between the philosophical regime and way of life on the one hand and the democratic and later tyrannical regime and way of life on the other the picture of democracy that is developed in the course of this comparison is not pretty. While Socrates concedes, there are going to be a lot of quotations now, concedes that it's most of all under this constitution, the democratic one, that one finds people of all varieties and that many people would probably judge this regime to be the most beautiful. He also goes on to dwell at length on the consequences of the liberty and license that characterize democratic life. The democratic regime, he claims, is full of freedom and freedom of speech. And everyone has license to do what he wants. Where people have this license, he goes on, it's clear of them that each of them will arrange his own life in whatever manner pleases him. The results, however, of allowing this degree of liberty are that it becomes inevitable that freedom should go to all lengths so that a father accustoms himself to behave like a child and fear his sons, while the son behaves like a father, feeling neither shame nor fear in front of his parents in order to be free. A resident alien or foreign visitor is made equal to a citizen, as the proverb says, dogs become like their mistresses. Horses and donkeys are accustomed to roam freely and proudly along the streets, bumping in to anyone who doesn't get out of their way, and all the rest are equally full of freedom. Education is corrupted into a mixture of self-seeking and flattery. Socrates claims a teacher in such a community is afraid of his students and flatters them, while the students despise their teachers or tutors. And in general, the young compete with their elders in word and deed, while the old stoop to the level of the young and are full of play and pleasantry, imitating the young for fear of appearing disagreeable and authoritarian. The political process is corrupted into sycophancy as voters give no thought to what someone was doing before he entered public life and honor him only if he tells them that he wishes the majority well. The legal system becomes subject to manipulation by money and power, as the citizens take no notice of the laws, whether written or unwritten, in order to avoid having any master at all. Both plaintiffs and defendants take pride in being clever at doing injustice and then exploiting every loophole and trick to escape conviction. And worst of all are the consequences for individual life. Given free reign to do what he will, the individual, Socrates says, surrenders rule over himself to whatever desire comes along where our dreams make it clear that there is a dangerous, wild, and lawless form of desire in everyone. Democratic individuals committed to self-seeking will call reverence foolishness and moderation cowardice, and they will hold that measured and orderly expenditure is boorish and mean especially the young, will be corrupted by the possibility to taste the honey of the drones and associate with wild and dangerous creatures who can provide every variety of multicolored pleasure in every sort of way. As a result, they never taste any stable or pure pleasure. Instead, they always look down at the ground like cattle and with their heads bent over the dinner table, they feed, fatten, and fornicate. Terrific translation, a favorite line. And so the democratic individual lives on, yielding day by day to the desire at hand, with the qualification that those without the means to do this become a disgruntled rabble of paupers who are all too likely to turn to a dictator for redress of their grievances. The only cure for these interrelated social, political, psychological, cognitive, and moral miseries, according to Plato, is the rule of the philosophers. Until philosophers rule as kings, or those who are now called kings and leading men genuinely and adequately philosophize, that is, until political power and philosophy entirely coincide, cities will have no Rest from evils, nor, I think, will the human race. This entitlement of philosophers to rule is rooted in their having uniquely, after a laborious education, grasped the form of the good that is the most important thing to learn about, since it is by their relation to it that just things and the others become beneficial and useful. The form of the good is the cause of all that is correct and beautiful in anything so that anyone who is to act sensibly in public or private must see it. Plato does concede that sometimes, rarely, individuals might manage without supporting educational, political, social, and other institutions to do this on their own, that is to see the form of the good. There is a model of the ideal city laid up in heaven for anyone who wants to look at it and make himself its citizen on the strength of what he sees. It is, in fact, better for everyone to be ruled by divine reason within himself on his own. But if that is not possible, then this rule must be imposed from without, so that as far as possible, all will be alike and friends, governed by the same thing rather than vulgarly competitive, self-seeking, and self-centered competitors. That's the end of part one. Without providing detailed empirical evidence, though I note, for example, that there are some experimental findings showing that, quote, heavy TV viewers do not benefit, but instead report lower life satisfaction with access to more TV channels. In other words, more choice is not always good. I take it that Plato's worries about democratic life are broadly recognizable, despite the hyperbole. At the same time, we are scarcely likely to find Plato's solution either plausible or attractive. Just what the form of the good is, a pattern of all particular types of goodness somehow existing abstractly in platonic heaven along with the numbers, and independent of and able to correct wants and desires as individuals experience them, just what that is is obscure. Moreover, it is implausible that we should want to be, quote, all alike. Free experimentation in ways of life under conditions of democratic liberty, where many different individuals and peoples may bounce off and learn from one another, is surely a good thing, as John Stuart Mill eloquently pointed out in On Liberty. Any platonic effort, any attempt by any philosopher to rule over and prescribe what we ought to do with ourselves individually and socio-politically is likely to seem little more than an effort at cultural tyranny. Why not let a hundred flowers bloom, let a hundred schools of thought contend? Against Plato there is more than a little wisdom in this suggestion. At the same time, Plato's indictments of democracy do have some resonance in our current socio-political conditions. And it is surely correct also both A, that not all desires and preferences are equal in merit, and B, that all changes in valuings are nothing but unreasoned preference shifts. For example, my children, when they were very young, significantly preferred the Barney song a song about friendship sung by a giant purple dinosaur on a television show, to box cello suites. Happily, their preferences have now shifted. But does it seem plausible to say that they simply shifted, end of story, rather than that this shift somehow involved a growth in maturity and in their understanding of what is both musically and humanly valuable? sometimes it is possible to discover things that are more reasonably worth wanting and doing. To be sure, this is only one example and not everyone will agree with even this one. But the phenomenon of in some way or other becoming at some point or other more aware of what is worth wanting beyond simple sensory pleasures and material acquisition is available to everyone at some point. We seem then to find ourselves in a mixed position, not as badly off within democratic life as Plato thought, as well as in possession of the genuine good of liberty that Plato failed to appreciate. But also, we are worried about cultural drift, free riding, hyper litigiousness, the rule of money, economic inequality and exploitation, and personal and social chaos, all more or less as Plato predicted. How then have we managed to resist to some extent the complete collapse into chaos that Plato predicted? And how might we come to do better by building on these sources of meaning and of resistance to chaos than we are doing at exactly this moment? As sources of resistance against chaos, licentiousness, exploitation, and all the rest, I will briefly mention four interrelated ideas. One, the 20th century American political philosopher John Rawls, in his 1971, A Theory of Justice, and in other works, developed a systematic theory of both political and economic justice. This theory rests, ultimately, on what Rawls calls the two basic moral powers of persons. One, the ability to construct, revise, and pursue a conception of the good. And two, a sense of justice. That is, ignoring all the details, Rawls takes it for granted that we are both able and committed to living with our fellow human beings within political states under terms of fair cooperation. There is, of course, room for a lot of debate about what fair cooperation means, but my first suggestion is that we have done well by taking the language of fairness seriously and to turn to my second question, how might we do better, that we might do better at present by continuing to take the language of fairness and fair cooperation seriously, resisting the vulgarity of the unqualified idea that we should all run as fast as we can, the devil take the hindmost. Two. One might worry, however, that the very concept of fair cooperation in any reasonable form is less available than Rawls supposes it is, especially when we are taught every day in economics classes that the only legitimate form of practical reasoning is to figure out efficient and effective means for getting what you want. And given that people do have genuine material needs, why and how Can and should we talk of fair cooperation seriously? Here, Jürgen Habermas has proposed a useful answer. Throughout Europe in the late 18th century, in the institutions of what Habermas calls the public sphere, including coffee houses, salons, reading clubs, Masonic lodges, and so on, people just did find themselves talking together critically and reflectively about the powers and limits of government about tax and trade policy, and other aspects of joint social life. They held in view sharply the question of what they, as a people in a place, wanted to be. They took seriously the question of under what terms of fair cooperation they could continue to participate in and develop their life as a people. The point here is that talk of fair cooperation is not simply a philosopher's invention out of nowhere. People do just naturally talk and think about their conditions of joint life. We would be better off to cultivate more of this kind of talk and to do so critically and reflectively, holding all assumptions, especially that of the priority of instrumental reasoning, up for public consideration and debate, as we have done in the past, Perhaps I don't need to convince you of this since you are already members of the public sphere in this sense just by being here. Three, but how and why did such conversations take place? Here, Hegel noticed that significant public deliberation about a common way of life within a nation, state, arose historically out of specific religious understandings that both bound individuals together as created beings and directed them to express their religious understanding of themselves in their public, economic, and political lives. This idea will be, as Hegel saw, most familiar in some forms of mainstream Protestantism, though it has roots in Catholicism and resonances elsewhere as well. I have a former colleague who found such ideas in the Buddhist tradition, for example. Here, for us, both increasing secularization and increasing diversity among religious commitments are problems in comparison with the relative unities of the Protestant regions of the nation states of Northern Europe in the late 18th century. But it is, I think and hope, not altogether impossible that a sense of common purpose within joint social life might be nurtured by drawing together articulately the various strands of public religion that are available from within diverse traditions. Finally, four. But a sense of joint purpose and engagement in anything is arguably not as available as it once was within a culture that was once upon a time more unified than it is now, both religiously and ethnoculturally. Are there then any significant ways to develop a sense of joint purposiveness and mutual engagement under conditions of their relative absence or diminution? Here the contemporary American philosopher, Stanley Cavell, has argued at length that work in the modern arts, perhaps especially film, combined with critical interpretive discourse about the arts, can function as a way of developing both individual and joint investment in meaning making. Difficult modern works, for example, the poetry of Wallace Stevens, or the novels of William Gaddis, or the films of Werner Herzog, are challenging in resisting the recycling of stale plots and devices of presentation. That is one source of their difficulty. But they also, in their diction, images, and development, hint at and promise meaning or fullness of attention beyond the ordinary, and these hints and promises are sometimes redeemed in critical conversation. We can, that is, find ourselves in conversation about these works getting it together, as we find words that help us to articulate the insight and point embodied in whatever John Coltrane or Jennifer Egan was doing. Sometimes difficult modern works even take up the topic of the possibility of deepened attention to and investment in shared social life, and they sometimes scrutinize and assess this possibility in nuanced, qualified ways. For example, Jane Austen in Pride and Prejudice presents a happily achieved marriage as an emblem of genuineness of mutual interest against a background of worry about the shape of society overall. While Leo Tolstoy in Anna Karenina describes the ability of a decaying social form together with the psychological dynamics it engenders to defeat possibilities of reciprocity. Or, to use more contemporary, but perhaps less familiar examples, Francois Truffaut's movie Day for Night is a parable of the possibility of genuine and exhilarating joint achievement, albeit shadowed by death and transience. While Michael Verhoeven's Das Schreckliche Mädchen, The Nasty Girl, tracks the persistence of the difficulty in combining a shared sense of the way things are to be done with the values of individuality, courage, and eroticism broadly considered. So here are four suggestions about sources of resistance to the vulgarities of a life of unrestrained liberty, suggestions that are, I think, worth taking seriously. Rawls on the cultivation and articulation of a sense of fairness. Habermas on the public sphere, Hegel on religion, and Cavell on the modern arts and discourse about them. This brings me, at last, to the role of philosophy within a democratic culture. All four of these possibilities of approach to more meaningful life have been taken from the work of professional, salaried philosophers, each of whom works not from a position of isolation, but rather from within common social life. They are attentive to history, literature, politics, and other concrete social phenomena. Each of them develops a vocabulary for articulating which of the multiple possibilities of practice that are available to us might prove fruitful in specific ways. They cast us as already, whether we acknowledge it or not, caught up in processes of mutual formation or building in which processes we might do either better or worse than we do now, as we either explore or shirk from possibilities of more meaningful, more jointly and individually affirmable life. Should a democratic society pay for anyone to do this kind of work? The four philosophers whom I mentioned, Rawls, Habermas, Hegel, and Cavell, each spent their careers within universities. It took them many years of reading and reflection, coupled with conversations with others, to develop their views. Yet their views remain not only important, but also accessible to many within a democratic culture. And they have both trained and spawned legions of students, expositors, critics, and so on, who have each, in their own way, contributed to a continuing conversation about meaningful democratic life. Would we be better off without the work of these figures and without the students, expositors, critics, and conversations to which they have given birth? That is a question for us all to think about. But my suggestion is that if we as members of a democratic culture stopped investing in and taking such work seriously, then our democratic life might well collapse into what Plato predicted it would. That would be a very bad thing. Happily, however, as I have suggested, significant democratic life otherwise, at least approaching both individual ways of life and joint institutional life that we can reflectively affirm is also possible. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much and thanks to Meredith Hall and people at Sydney Ideas for organizing this, and especially Dahlia, and thank you to Richard for joining us this evening. Is there a place for philosophy in a democratic society? So I'll be looking at this in, in very general and sort of terms from the present perspective. The bill for the systematic pursuit of philosophy as an organised activity that takes place within predominantly publicly funded universities and supported by publicly funded grant systems is largely met by the taxpayer. Understandably, the question is raised from time to time as why the taxpayer should support this type of activity. Indeed, such questions were raised specifically in relation to the funding of research and philosophy during the last election campaign, when the then shadow treasurer, now the treasurer, Joe Hockey, and the chair of the Liberal Party's Waste Watch Committee, Jamie Briggs, singled out for criticism the Australian Research Council's funding of four projects, two of which were philosophy projects, one of which I had led as chief investigator. This latter project, in the philosophy of religion, had been awarded a lot of money, $442,000 over four years. That amount had predominantly gone towards paying the salary of a postdoctoral fellow employed for three of the four years of the project on providing a stipend for a postgraduate student to work on a PhD during the life of the project, Um, and providing three semesters relief from undergraduate teaching for myself as the team coordinator. To make a comparison, $442,000 is somewhat less than the amount that the government might invest in a scholarship for a single Olympic athlete over the same period in an effort to gain a medal at the next Olympics. The ARC manages a competitive grant funding system and our project had been selected by the relevant expert committee as one of the 845 projects funded for that year out of 4,164 applications received across the areas of the humanities, science and social science. Effectively everything except medical, the medical sciences which have their own funding um, body. But just as a citizen may be doubtful about the investment costs of trying to secure a single gold medal at the next Olympics, another may be sceptical about, about similar amounts of money spent on research into ways of understanding the concept of God, which was part of our brief. Why should there be organised philosophical activity in a modern community such as ours and why should it be supported by the taxpayer? Philosophy in particular in this context might be thought of as an easy target. Similar questions are not likely to be raised in relation to forms of research in relation to which citizens might see themselves as potential beneficiaries. Research in the medical sciences being the obvious example. Indeed, the coalition's tack on the funding of philosophy was accompanied by contrasting these unworthy projects with more worthy ones such as um, research into diabetes and dementia. Philosophy in particular is a discipline with which many voters will be unfamiliar. And many will be unlikely to understand how progress in it could be relevant to their own well-being. They might even think that the topics it deals with as bizarre, even ridiculous. Why why then should they see their taxes spent in its support? Well, as we've heard from Richard, Plato, of course, had an answer (laughs) Um, as to the necessity of philosophy for society. Employing a crude anthropological theory in which individuals were effectively divided into thinkers, doers, and consumers. They might think of them as sort of nerds, jocks, and everybody else. (laughs) The political task from Plato's point of view was to ensure that the thinkers ruled. So as to guarantee the rule of reason over the various lower forces of unreason. His solution, as we've heard, was the philosopher King. But to put the best spin on this, we might say that the underlying idea was that the best polis would be one in which decision making was somehow philosophically informed. That is, informed by some type of pure, disinterested reasoning that Plato thought of as typically philosophical. But we don't have to accept Plato's very questionable anthropological theory here. There's no reason why the so-called rule of reason be thought in terms of the rule of an individual or group of individuals, some group of experts or whatever, that are somehow identified um, as the custodians of reason. And stripped of Plato's particular interpretation, it's hard to argue with the idea that decision making informed by the best standards of reasoning um, is a good thing. And so, approaching this issue from the perspective of life in a modern democratic society, one might think it more from the perspective of, say, the education of the citizens of that society. If having a say in determining the course of society is to be devolved over the citizens, then is it not a good thing to encourage in citizens as much as possible the development of the type of reasoning capacities that Plato bundled up into the philosopher king? Those capacities needed to make rational decisions within a complex modern world. We might, for example, think that as increasing percentages of our population get to participate in tertiary education, which is predominantly where philosophical education happens, that at least part of this education be thought of from the perspective of preparing them for lives as citizens, not simply as directed towards vocational training. For this reason alone it might be thought the role of philosophy in the curriculum of the modern university could be encouraged and it could then be argued that it would be unrealistic to think of the maintenance of a healthy philosophical education without opportunities for the educators themselves to practice as well as teach philosophy. This after all is a principle at the heart of the modern university conceived as an institution in which learning and teaching are thought of as themselves somehow informed by active pursuits of the disciplines being taught. That is, broadly informed by research. Even so, given the comparative unfamiliarity of systematic philosophy, I think something more needs to be said here. Popularist ridiculing of philosophy is after all as old as philosophy itself. As it was put during the election campaign, why should the public fund a group of people sitting around waiting to have a good idea? (laughs) Isn't this something that they can do in their own time, on weekends, say? Why should taxpayers be concerned with answers to ridiculous questions? In trying to engage with criticisms of these sorts, I think we must get beyond certain popular pictures of the nature of philosophy. Pictures that themselves often derive, I think, from the Platonic heritage of philosophy, and that can do, and that can be a hindrance to f- understanding what philosophy is in the modern world. Philosophy as an activity, I suggest, has long been pictured in ways that reflect the particularly anti-democratic milieu within, it, with win, within which it first developed in the Athenian polis, and a more appropriate picture of this activity is needed for thinking about its place in modern democratic societies. Certainly, Richard has sort of covered um, a var- variety of areas that are relevant in that respect. I want to focus particularly on an aspect of philosophizing that gets obscured by the Greek model. That philosophy is, in some sense, just a form of work. And indeed, a form of work tied to the achievement of certain social goods. So the second part of my talk is called philosophy as intellectual work. Among the assumptions found not only in Plato but in many other ancient Greek thinkers that might be found problematic here, I want to focus on the view of of knowing understood on the model of a type of disinterested looking or observation. A type of looking with the mind's eye, somehow analogous to the functioning of the bodily eye. This is a picture that promotes the idea that knowledge can be arrived at independent of acting in the world. This traditional view of knowing has had many critics in modern times, the American pragmatist John Dewey being one of the most insistent. Dewey thought that this conception of philosophy was something we inherited from what was effectively a slave-owning society that simply disparaged human labor as something not properly fit for rational human beings. Consequently, this conception sought to separate knowing from acting in the world. On Dewey's replacement view, much of which he took over from the earlier German philosopher Hegel, knowledge should not be thought of as some type of private possession of which only, certainly only uh, certain individuals are capable. It's not some view of the world had from some elevated point not quite in the world, somewhere up in the heavens. Um, a God's eye view, as some people talk about, a view from nowhere, a helicopter view. Rather, we're all born into a vast storehouse of accumulated beliefs, interpretations, and representations of the world established in and handed down from the past. Hegel's sort of general way of capturing this was to talk about spirit. Such a storehouse is is itself the product of early attempts to make sense of the world and our place in it. And the earliest stages of life will be largely devoted to incorporating this what Hegel thought of as second nature, into ourselves. At some stage, but only in virtue of this earlier period of acculturation, we become capable of holding these claims up for scrutiny, of asking why we should accept them as true. Engaging with them in this way might be thought of as what, one thing that philosophy does. Possibly the easiest way to get an initial grip on this approach to human knowledge is to consider the history of particular sciences. Although I certainly don't want to restrict the scope of this idea to the sciences, and we could equally well talk about other forms of representations in the arts, religious beliefs, and so on, in this process of a type of general sense-making of the world. To tell the history of a science, much as, say, the modern physics, for example, will be predominantly to tell the story of the replacement of earlier views, let's say the traditional... Um, Aristotelian view of the cosmos that was replaced in the early modern period, the rise and fall of subsequent theories, models general accounts of explaining the world, particular ways of making claims, testing those claims and so on. In the language used by a philosopher of science, Karl Popper, the growth of a science such as physics will not be just the steadily accumulation of beliefs or facts or something like that, but a a dynamic process of what he called conjectures and refutations. Individual thinkers of course come into this picture. Think of Newton, Einstein perhaps Peter Higgs. But these will be seen as innovators who appeared at the right time in the right place, solving some particular problem that had arisen in the culture waiting to be solved. Of introducing radically new explanatory concepts and so on. That is, doing the work of transforming the sorts of structures which they had inherited from those coming before them and putting their distinctive stamp on the way these structures would evolve into the future. So on this view, thinking, I suggest, is indeed a type of work, but not primarily work directed on worldly objects as such, like, for example, activities of gardening or building a house. It's work predominantly carried on on what we might think of as ideal objects, theories, models, general accounts. And that this is carried out predominantly in symbolic media, in human languages, in the media of mathematics, maybe formalized languages in the natural sciences and so on. All of languages, media, within which ideal entities like this are represented. The Greek Platonic view of philosophy as a type of seeing, I suggest, uh, tends to obscure this working dimension of thought and can thereby obscure the role philosophy has played and continues to play in this collective development of human society. One particularly damaging picture of the philosopher, a remnant of the philosopher king idea, is that of a type of expert on reason, someone who adjudicates from some rather lofty position on the rationality of the efforts of his or her, but from this picture predominantly his, um, scientific or humanist colleagues. In contrast, John Locke's later more modest conception of a philosopher as what he called the underlaborer of the sciences um, might be a bit more adequate. Although I'd not want to limit the scope of this role to that of serving the sciences, and I would differ from Locke as to the actual goal of the labourer, of the labour that the philosopher tried to achieve. In contrast to Locke, I'll suggest a view of philosophy as an activity in which the philosopher stands in relation to the rest of culture and thinks about problems that get thrown up from the dynamic processes of that culture. Thus, the development of the sciences might seem to come into contradiction with beliefs acquired from other parts of the culture, beliefs from literature, let's say, or from religion. Our novelistic culture may picture individuals with a rich inner subjective life, while cognitive scientists may portray the mind in rather mechanistic ways that seems to leave this dimension out. Such conflicts, I suggest, become the staples for philosophical reflection. We collectively strive to make sense of the world and our place in it and feel the need to reconcile the claims of experts both with each other and with common sense. The collective attempt to make sense of a world is a dynamic process in which concepts and ways of seeing and representing the world um, get pushed, pulled, stretched in all sorts of ways, applied to new situations, applied to new problems. This can generate internal blockages, impediments to the functioning of inquiry, leading to unfruitful questions being asked and pursued. Aristotle thought of philosophizing as stimulated by by what he called aporiae, perplexities. And it's hard to believe that that modern life, in particular, doesn't have its share of these. The American philosopher C.S. Peirce had as a motto, don't stand in the way of inquiry. And the picture of philosophy I'm suggesting is one in which the philosopher attempts, at least in part, to find ways beyond the aporiae and blockages that emerge in our collective process of trying to make sense of the world and our place in it. In the remainder of this talk, I'm going to concentrate on a simple example of such a type of blockage in which common sense can come into conflict with innovation and potentially block progress. The example I'll start with contains a topic that can seem and has indeed often been thought to be ridiculous. That is why I've chosen it. The topic is nothing. But it's also one that might speak to the practical concerns of our current treasurer. I'll start with an anecdote from my school days. I don't remember many lessons from the years I spent at primary school at St Michael's Maris Brothers College, Daceyville, in the mid 1950s. But one lesson did lodge in my mind. A particular lesson by the maths teacher I had in perhaps fourth or fifth class, Mr. Alexander. Mr. Alexander had his own rather peculiar views on the basic arithmetic that we were learning at the time. He thought the multiplication tables on the back of our exercise books, the sort of things that we learned to sort of chant in class, were in fact systematically wrong and contravened common sense. The tables told you that multiplying a number, say two, by the number zero resulted in the answer zero. This was clearly false, he told us since to multiply 2 by 0 was to multiply it by nothing. That is, it was not to do anything to the number at all. <laughs> Thus the correct answer in what we might call the Alexandrian system of mathematics should be the number that one started with, in this case the number 2. To his credit, he advised that for the exams we followed the erroneous approach to <laughs> arithmetic <laughs> that had become the conventional one. <laughs> uh, you might Guess one of the reasons that I'm not talking to you as a professor of mathematics. (laughs) (laughs) Now I picked this example um, for a number of reasons. First, because it's one that might appeal, as I said, to our current treasurer, so concerned in his day-to-day life with numbers in the way that a treasurer must be. But also what we might call Mr Alexander's puzzle provides a good example of a type of aporiae that goes beyond maths and quickly becomes philosophical. It's important, I think, that we do try to make sense of the pictures of the world that specialist areas, science, religion, art, and so forth, present us with. But I don't think we should simply accept everything that experts say. Here, in this example, maths seems to come into collision with what appears to be common sense. How could not doing anything to something, that is, not multiplying a number by some other number, make that thing, the original number, somehow disappear? I'm going to suggest that the common sense involved here be seen as rooted in a bit of unconscious philosophizing and that the way out of the dilemma requires some better conscious philosophizing. So here maybe is one simple benefit of keeping a systematic philosophical culture alive. Humans, like Mr. Alexander, spontaneously philosophize. We just can't stop it. And it takes philosophy to be able to identify and root out those unhelpful bits of earlier philosophising. So, zero. In fact, we know that when the number zero was first introduced into Europe in, I think it was 1202, in a book, Liber Abaci, by Leonardo of Pisa, he's, he's also known as Fibonacci, and he's the person that's associated with the Fibonacci numbers, it was met by protests similar to those seen in, not all that long ago, Um, in Mr. Alexander's maths class. And it took a couple of centuries for zero to be accepted, despite the conveniences that attended its use. Indeed, its use was outlawed for some time in Florence, as were thought to be associated with shady business practices. You could simply add a couple of noughts right after you... It's sort of interesting the way conspiracy theories often sort of develop in these contexts. You'll recall that the number system that Europe inherited from Rome was one in which numbers were represented by letters. I for 1, V for 5, X for 10, and so on, through to M for 1,000. I think it stopped there. Single or s- single ones or strings of ones um, could be put before or other numerals to get, you know, 4, IV, um, 8, V11, and whatever. But there was no zero, The lack of zero makes the Roman system of numerals incredibly unwieldy, as you will find out if you try to do some simple sums using it. Google multiplication in Roman numerals if you want a few hours' distraction on the weekend. Google division using Roman numerals if you really want to send yourself crazy over the weekend. The system is said to have come from the practice of shepherds cutting grooves in their staffs to record the number of sheep. It's perhaps practical for keeping a record of your sheep, but it's a nightmare with which to try and do your tax return. Mr. Hockey, I suggest, would be in big trouble if he relied on it to to work out the nation's budget, which has to deal in billions and even trillions of dollars. We now regard the number zero as one of the great discoveries, inventions of civilization. It Had been discovered or invented, but take your pick, in India, and the rules of use um, had first been codified by the Indian mathematician and astronomer Brahma Gupta during the 7th century. There had been a prehistory to this invention, as from ba- Babylonian times, symbols had been used to indicate an empty space used on an abacus, right, when you people sort of sliding along the little stones and so on. That was the sort of origin of the number zero, but it was never really treated as a number prior to the Indians. After Brahmagupta, zero started to be treated as a genuine number, such that one could do various things with it, like add it to other numbers, and, contrary to the opinion of Mr. Alexander, multiply it um, by other numbers and multiply other numbers by it. In retrospect, it seems reasonably easy to appreciate the part of the... that part of the resistance to accepting the number zero came from the platonic way of thinking about knowledge. The number zero seems to get its meaning, if it has a meaning, from the way the numeral representing it is manipulated when when we learn to do sums with it. But if we think of knowing as a type of seeing, we'll find it extremely difficult to get anything like an idea of what the number zero is into focus by the mind's eye. You might think of, you know, three apples. Take one away, there's two apples. Take one away, there's one apple. Take one away. The Greeks may have invented mathematics as a system and, and as a logically unified science. But Greek mathematics was effectively limited to geometry with its visual figures. Calculation was, in fact, disparaged as a slavish activity. And number theory was left undeveloped. Um, Arithmetic and algebra just didn't really get very far in Greek culture. So the type of algebra and arithmetic required when the sciences were reignited in the 16th and 17th centuries needed to come from another source. And they tended to come from this, um, the Indian uh, tradition transmitted by the Arabs. In fact, an obstruction to the introduction of zero into European culture was not the only example of how the sort of knowing as seeing metaphor can get in the way of inquiry. Around the same time, similar obstructions to the development of the idea of void space, an idea that was required by Newton's physics, came from the very same Greek set of assumptions. From the dominant Aristotelian point of view at the time, there just wasn't anything that we could talk about, called space. For, for Aristotle, there were places, but there was no sort of sense of space. And the very idea of space was dismissed as ridiculous because it was simply nothing, and you couldn't say anything intelligible about nothing. With the benefit of hindsight, we might sort of chuckle about these examples, but it would be very nearsighted, I suggest, to think that in relation to some of the ideas. Uh, the, the sum of our own ideas, we are, we are not in the position of um, the critics of Leonardo of Pizza um, and, um, and Newton. Radical innovations are almost universally initially dismissed out of hand as being ridiculous, simply because they're new. They have to be given a chance to prove themselves. But let me bring the issue of zero a bit closer to our own time. We normally think that any number divided by zero gives the answer infinity. And this has always been thought to be a particularly problematic notion. Infinity just doesn't seem like an actual number and paradoxes seem to follow from treating it as a number. For example, if we start listing all the even numbers, it's obvious that we can pair this sequence of numbers with the list of natural numbers, right? So all the odds and evens. That is, if we continued this process to infinity, there seems to be the same number of even numbers as there are odd and even numbers. But surely there are twice as many natural numbers as there are even numbers. So it's paradoxes like this that kept, kept mathematicians themselves away from the realm of infinite numbers. That, at least it was like that up to the n- late 19th century. Um, And against conventional opinion, Gael Cantor decided to treat infinity as a number and produced various proofs to the effect that there were, in fact, more than one um, infinity. Indeed, later came to be thought to be shown uh, that there was an infinite number of infinities. Here, the introduction of infinity as a number was opposed in the way that zero had been opposed almost a millennium before. Um, uh, Mathematic opponents of Cantor, for example, tried to prevent his works being published in um, journals of mathematics and so on. And if they succeeded, I suggest our world might be now very different as it's not at all difficult to tell a story that links the problems unearthed by Cantor in his treatment of infinity at the end of the 19th century to the later work of Alan Turing in the 1930s and his invention of the famous... Turing machine. An ideal algorithm implementing machine that became the model for the computers that we use in our daily lives. We've come to expect and demand innovation within modern culture, and particularly science, and as long as there is a dynamic modern culture, there will be, on my understanding of philosophy, a place for philosophical thought, as among other things a discipline whose practitioners are trained to apply just trained to try to locate and deal with the sorts of aporiae that are thrown up in the course of inquiry and that often threaten its progress. Such aporiae are thrown up and seen as problems, I suggest, because it is our it is in our nature to try and make sense of the world and our place in it. Um, it's in our nature to be like Mr. Alexander and sort of you know think there's something wrong here and think about it. As long as we continue to do this. There will be a place, I think, in our culture for organised philosophy.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Richard and Paul. So I will just ask a couple of questions of the two speakers and then we'll uh, move to the audience questions. Richard, one of the things I particularly enjoyed in your presentation was the depiction of Plato's vision of democracy as being not very far from our own world. The rule of money, economic inequality and exploitation and personal and social chaos doesn't sound that unrecognizable. In fact, it's quite recognizable. And you nicely draw out four ways in which we have been able to and can continue to resist um, becoming even, um, you know, getting into that nightmarish vision that Plato had so eloquently depicted. So my question is, can you say more about the process of philosophical reflection that you attribute as a site of resistance? So these four sites that have been able to resist um, Plato's nightmarish vision, why is philosophy so essential here?
1: I think I'm very close to Paul on these issues, so I like his treatment of philosophy as a kind of work, uh, particularly as he put it, work on abstract objects. I would add to his list of abstract objects, he mentioned theories and hypotheses and so forth, numbers. I would add concepts in general. I think of concepts as commitments um, Mastery of a concept just is a commitment to apply a concept word in a certain way. To call something roughly of human scale resting on legs with a flat horizontal surface a table. Mastery of the concept table isn't gazing gotten by gazing at platonic heaven, it's a settled commitment we've worked up in our linguistic practice. As Paul suggested, we can have lots of tangled commitments, aporia is the word he used, We can find ourselves thinking of human beings as both, what, evolved biological animals, which I take it they now for us more or less obviously are, and also as centers of consciousness and will, and so we have a perplexity or an aporia. How can we be both these two things at the same time? Various answers have been proposed by philosophers and we could spend a long time arguing about which one of these is most eligible. I think of philosophy as grooming, working on, thinking about perplexities that arise in relation to concepts at a relatively high level. Philosophy is distinguished from other disciplines in which this is also done by its traditions of making arguments and commitments explicit particularly by using formal logic. Most great philosophers have either studied or in many cases contributed to the development of formal logic. But the difference between philosophy and other subjects, as suggested by, what was his name, Mr. Alexander? Um, Is not sharp. People naturally raise philosophical questions about commitments, both on their own and in the other disciplines. So I see philosophy as simply one distinct historically distinct form of explicitness of argumentation about tangled commitments uh, with its own traditions of logic and explicitness that ought, as as a tradition, also to interact continuously with history, literature, natural science, and so on.
0: Thanks, Richard. I actually really also enjoyed the description of philosophy as intellectual labor, which I think hasn't been uh, thought about or underscored in the popular media, media and descriptions of what philosophers actually do. And one of the things you said, Paul, was philosophy is not something that or shouldn't be something that one just does as a hobby or can't be something that one just does on the weekends. And I think a lot of popular views of philosophy say, well, everybody philosophizes and that's true. Philosophy is natural. Um, so why not? Why should philosophy be something that one pursues full time?
2: That's a good question, Dalia. Um, And I think that I certainly wouldn't, I'm certainly not saying that in a way to disparage um, what we think of, I mean, everyone philosophizes on their weekends, right, on their sort of time off, including professional philosophers. What I'd suggest is I don't think, I think it would be unrealistic to think that there could be a a healthy philosophical culture that only existed like that. Um, Put it like this. if, if philosoph- I don't think you could have a community of philosophers that were all like Emily Dickinson. Right? I mean, there needs to be a sort of a body of people who in some sense are organised, talk to each other, meet each other at conferences, read each other's books or papers or something like that um, in order for there to be a philosophical community to exist. Now, it, w- it would be wonderful if that could um, happen without philosophy as discipline rely on the taxpayer. But I've never seen any possibility, really, um, of philosophy extending itself into uh, a type of self, what, self-supporting sort of activity. It would have to become extremely popular. Um, certainly, there are many popular philosophers, uh, pop- philosophers who write for a broader audience, and I'm absolutely in support of that. But I don't think we could expect the philosophical community as a whole, as it were, to, 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 to work in that mode um, at all, um, all the time. I think what we need is um, basically jobs for people um, who are perhaps they're not very... Perhaps they've shown themselves not to be good at a lot of other things, but very good at one thing. Um, and um, I, th- I think we, re- we simply require the, the, the sort of tertiary education um, system uh, to provide a place for philosophy, at least in the present time. Yeah.
0: Speaking of education, um, my last question is to both of you, and I'm, I'm curious, one of the things that Plato depicts uh, about democracy is that um, in fact, education has to be has to keep us away from becoming democrats or democratic individuals. Whereas, what I got from your presentations is that democracy requires education. Democracy is only possible if we have. Thinking, reflecting, critical individuals who are engaging in um, questioning and looking at what is a meaningful life and what is a meaningful community, what it is that we want, and this seems to be not merely any old kind of education, but a philosophical education. In the in the term, the German term Bildung comes to mind here: formation, cultivation. So I would be curious to hear from both of you on the relationship between philosophical education and democracy, and whether democracy is actually only possible, a real democracy is only possible if we have young people who are being educated philosophically.
1: That's certainly what I was suggesting. Uh, to sum up the fear that about democratic life that, that Plato articulates in two words, um, Potato chips, right? Potato chips are tasty. Uh, You can eat one and then eat another. Or crisps, I guess they're called here, right? That's what I'm talking about. Um, Or beer, or for that matter, heroin. There are all sorts of pleasures that it's very easy to pursue. We have a natural tendency, especially when young, to enjoy these pleasures without forming ourselves or developing ourselves if we committed ourselves to a life based only on those kind only on those kinds of pursuits not sometimes on those kinds of pursuits then i think we would be in very bad shape so yes i think plato's worry is right democracy liberty and license alone without education or formation without learning what's worth caring about very bad and dangerous thing
2: i guess i'd think of the relationship between democracy and philosophy um, by saying that philosophy needs democracy, um, and thinking about the limitations of Greek philosophy from the perspective of what we now can see about it. I mean, it effectively it did, um, in many ways, reflect the views that you would expect of a slave-owning society. Um, the, 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 The broader range of human experience that can be opened up for some sort of input into philosophical thinking um, seems to me the better. Um, The best way to get the most um, general, as it were, bits of the world in place is to appeal to the greatest range of human experience about it. Um, So, uh, for example, in one... um, quite big change, maybe it's not a big enough change, um, that I've seen in my career as a philosopher is the impact that feminism had on philosophy in the 70s, um, in which many people argued that there was a type of human experience that seemed to be systematically excluded from what was being thought of as the, as well, the philosophical way of thought. Um, so yeah, I think the more the better, in terms of um, input into philosophy. um, Philosophy is then about the the attempt to make some sense of this range of input, right? The the views that people have about their lives and the views that they have about the world. Um, It's not to accept um, every type of claim about the world. It's necessarily a systematic type of uh, discipline which tries to weed out incorrect views, tries to reconcile views with each other and so on. Um, And I think the requirement of that is the greatest range of experience of the world. Um, In some sense that just demands democracy, right? It demands people having a voice that is taken seriously as a voice within the public culture.
0: Okay, thank you. And we have a handheld, we have a mic that um We'll be going around and I ask everyone to please speak with the mic.
3: How would, how would Plato and how would you respond to our Attorney General George Brandis' attempt to uh, increase freedom to speak by limiting uh, the laws against, and I, I may have this wrong so I apologize if I'm wrong, racial slurs and other unpleasantries?
2: Well, look, in many ways, Acknowledging the right of free speech is an important thing to acknowledge, I think, in, in our community. But of course, rights go along with, in complex relations, with other rights, right? So um, we have to think about the rights that a individual would have not to be vilified on the basis of their race or sexuality or whatever. Um, and it's not, not simply, it seems to be, I mean, I think the phrase that came out, if I read the news today or yesterday, was um, the right to be a bigot. Right. Um, I'm not too sure that bigotry is easily definable as a right, but certainly um, I think the right to be protected um, against uh, verbal abuse and so forth is a right. And there is a, there is a, um, there is a right. We I mean, shouldn't be too sort of, you know, protective about this thing. I think there is a right for people to express their views about other people in a fairly robust way, or other groups of people in a fairly robust way. Um, calling it a right to be a bigot, I think, is rather problematic in my opinion.
0: We have another question, and please only speak with the mic.
4: Uh, first of all, thank you for your wonderful talk. Uh, my question is also related to Plato, if Plato were to come alive today, uh, what would he say about the Edward Snowden saga where a democratically elected government indulged in something against the very people who elected it, as well as people from other democracies? Now, let's assume for the sake of this context that Plato could speak English in both American and Australian accents. I want to hear from both of you.
1: I'm not sure I have an interesting answer to that. I think Plato would be horrified by what democratic life looks like now in many respects. And he was no friend of democracy. But here with Paul, I agree entirely that the image of philosophical understanding of our commitments and norms that Plato gives us is just not supportable. So what we've both been saying is rightly understood philosophy and democracy need each other. I think we're quite in agreement about that. That leaves various interesting problems on the books. I don't know what to do about hate speech and bigotry. It is, as Paul was suggesting, a difficult problem. The line between bigoted speech and free expression, say, not easy to draw. One hope might be that if we did cultivate education in the broad sense including philosophical education as part of our democratic life that maybe we would back off the language of individual rights somewhat and we would have more a sense of shared enterprise from the beginning that might cut the knees off bigotry from the very beginning that would be my hope
2: Um, one of the one of the sort of topics that occurred to me when um, I was putting this talk together was the fact that the standard ways that we talk about philosophy is in an extremely eurocentric way. The Greeks invented it. called, you know Christianity came in, there's the Middle Ages, there's early modern period and so on. Um, and in my, I mean, my, my own present uh, presentation, I had to appeal to a source. Of uh, contemporary ideas in science from another non Greek origin. Um, I think there's a lot of scope um, for thinking about other cultures as having an input into philosophical thought, as treating um, human experience as something that we can learn about um, in various non Euro specific ways. Um, anthropologists in some sense uh, make these available to us um, and comparing perhaps the narrowness of some of our own views of philosophy against attitudes that have developed in other cultures in their collective attempts to make sense of the world and, and their place in it um, can only, again can only be a good thing so um, yes I, I see that type of democratic uh, spread of input again into philosophy as a an essential part of philosophy in the modern world.
5: Hi. Um, you have said that uh, Plato is no friend of democracy. Uh, but could not Plato's you know, philosopher king system be reconciled with democracy? It, it could be a higher form of democracy in a way. So, um, I mean, what's democracy all about? It's about getting different parties together and arguing. And today we have, you know, liberal, labor, greens but we also have the sex party you know people in favor of shooting parties like that but what plato is getting at is and in the republic definitely it's about the city and the person he's about increasing education and reason in the person and in the city so if you had a a system of philosophers instead of the system that we have now of different parties in place they would still be arguing and they would still be leading a a democratic society. I mean, philosophers are all about arguing. Plato has the Socratic method. He doesn't want to get rid of debate. So you could have a a higher level of democracy with higher thinking, higher level of arguing in place. When you think about the role of a politician, I mean, it's all about recently arguing. And, And who does that better than philosophers, but at a higher level? I did
1: cite some moving line, the very last line of Book Nine of the Republic, where Socrates says, Plato has him say, that the Kallipolis, the ideal city, may never come into existence on Earth, but that there is a model of it laid up in heaven for each of us, a kind of democratic thought, to become its citizen on the strength of what he sees. So that sounds sort of democratic and hooray for that. That's the part of Plato I want to keep. The part I think you can't have, as Paul suggested, is philosophy may have a lot to do with argument, but for Plato, not everyone is allowed to argue. It's the nerds, the jocks, and the others, and really only the nerds get to argue, and that part of Plato we don't want to keep, I think.
2: Having experienced... annual general meetings of the Australasian Philosophical Association, I guess I don't, can't imagine what a sort of a philosophical, philosophically-led government would be like. I, I think there are, I mean, if you, like, leader writers often worry about a condition that they called um, expertocracy and so on, right? And see, threats to democracy um, coming from the role of... I mean, it's usually American newspapers, and they're usually about health experts and so on. um, But, you know, you have the same sort of paranoia um, uh, raised about, uh, let's say, you know, climate scientists and so on. Look, I I think there are... I mean, I think there are genuine problems um, that are being... Located with the idea that um, groups of experts shouldn't be seen as the natural people to run a society. I think there are worries about that. Um, But I take it that you're not sort of advocating something like that, but rather trying to expand the role of genuine argument in politics. And that's, uh, you know, so people being able to put forward views other than the ones that just get bundled together in the various parties. Um, and I think everybody in some sense wants to see a way, find a way beyond the type of corralling of, of views and so forth into these products that we have a chance of buying every three years of elections.
3: You both mentioned the role of argument in philosophy and just then. And I wonder actually whether philosophers argue with each other too much and I am reading John Rawls at the moment the search for a just world is a dominant search for all of us and his veil of ignorance I think is absolutely magnificent but he criticizes John Stuart Mill just about every third page and argues that he's creating a better philosophy for a Jew. Now, Mill was the guy who brought us on liberty, probably the premier thing that we have to justify our readings and liberty thinkings today. So why does one major philosopher criticise another major philosopher? And we still have no agreement on what is a just will. From the time of Plato, to today, we've been arguing what is an ethical act. Sorry, we haven't been arguing. Philosophers have been arguing. Well, argument, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, just one sentence. Yeah. My last count, we have 15 different theories now on what is an ethical act. Can we get it all together, or is that impossible?
1: Uh, that's a difficult question. A bit about argument is, I think, vision and imagination are equally important in philosophy, but argument is a way of testing your views and of keeping yourself honest. So it is important to argue, um, to expose your view to criticism and see what happens. Interestingly, on the point you mentioned about liberty, that's actually a point, though he criticizes Mill elsewhere very strongly, on which Rawls and Mill are in agreement. So Rawls accepts that there must be equal basic political rights and liberties among all citizens of the state. He's opposed only to Mill's maximizing account of happiness and claims that Mill leaves no room for the cultivation of diverse individualities in his own theory. But about liberty, political liberty, Interestingly, Mill and Rawls are at one. Can we ever get it right? Are the virtues one or many? Can we somehow get a single, systematic, complete theory of all the virtues and how they relate to each other? I think maybe not, and maybe that's a good thing, and that's what we need to argue about.
2: I certainly agree with what Richard said. in relation to your question, I, and I also agree, it's a very difficult question. But it does seem to me that not the only benefit of argument is reaching agreement. Right. So it's not as if all the argument comes to nothing if you end up with two the two people who are arguing still with opposed views. Because I, what, I think what argument brings out is the sort of the consequences of the commitments that you bring to the conversation, right, that you may not be aware of prior to them being forced out of you by someone who just won't accept what you say. Um, so the, the attempt to sort of c- forever come to a type of reason behind your stance, um, as a, as, and this is, I mean, this is an idea I think I find in Stanley Cavell, who Richard has referred to, There is something about the deepening of one's understanding of oneself that's a consequence of exposing one's views to argument, to to criticism by others. Um, And that probably, I I think of that as just a good in itself. It's sort of a deepening of what you're committed to when you describe yourself as having these views.
0: Yes, one of the things that I think both of you were touching on is that philosophy is a means, is a, is a challenge that we are called to meet, to rise out of our everyday kind of commonsensical views. And this enables us not only to understand the world better, but also to become, you know, become fuller human beings and, and achieve more meaningful lives. I think we have one more question.
4: Yep. Yep. My question is directed to Professor Paul. I really enjoyed the, the gist of what we're trying to unravel here. It's really interesting to me. And the case, I want to go back to the case that you mentioned about nothing. And I, I think I want to be fair to nothing, to zero, without sounding too negative. I want to trace back the, how Fib- Fibonacci himself was the, the son of an um, Italian merchant who, who travelled through his early days to Algier, North, North Africa, the, the Arabic country. Right. Yeah. And it seems from historical accounts, this is where the zero was picked up, the Sufri. Uh, and this is why it's known within the context of Arabic numerals. Mm-hmm. So my concern is, in a way, Fibonacci was himself an, an algebra master, and he had learned from the algebra master in the Arabic world. Mm. Now, zero itself was something that the algebraics in the Arabic world had incorporated from India, Mm. but it was a very different context to how it was used in India altogether. And so Fibonacci's context, immediate context, definitely lies within the Arabic world. Mm. And so my my concern here, how... maybe inadvertently, but nevertheless, you skipped over the, that region, that, that part of history, and you went straight to 7th century India, which was not in any way directly related to, to Italy itself, which was more living within the context of the Mediterranean. So maybe perhaps this is what the federal government was trying not to do, when, when no, no, this is just being fair to, to zero, because in a way, when the God question is asked and you now deal with the God question, in in a similar, in my opinion, skewed way, potentially, then this is what the government doesn't want to get involved in. This is why they would rather fund mathematics and medicine, and not questions that, you know, that would would unfortunately skip over the Arabic world and and its contribution, potentially. And and in fact, it was the Arabic culture that, through its golden age, that we currently live in, in my opinion.
2: Um, yeah, I mean my certainly um, my two sentence history of zero um, was you know, ridiculously abbreviated, but of course you're right that um, the Indian tradition was transmitted to Europe by, as in many other, as, as with of course a lot of Greek philosophy as well, by Arabic um, culture. I'm not too sure how that relates to the part of your question that bears on what the government as it were rightly thinks of funding um, my experience when this uh, that event happened when I was sort of when the, the project that I was involved in got singled out um, I received a lot of um, emails in sympathy um, from across the board but um, predominantly from philosophers and mathematicians, (laughs) interestingly, um, because mathematicians also see themselves as um, sort of on the outer uh, because they're not, you know, part of the practicing um, as were the natural sciences. They're not the medical, apart from areas of mathematics that's used by the medical sciences, um, they saw themselves as equally uh, vulnerable to the type of Government, the ideas of government funding that tied research to directly pragmatic benefits, right? So, you know, yes. So it was people who were in the business of sort of concept crunching, you know, philosophers, um, and people who were in the business of other, I think, misleadingly termed pure disciplines like um, mathematics. I think it's misleading because I don't think any discipline is, from, from, obviously from what I said, about the role of work on symbolic structures and so on, that, that, that it's, if you think of it that way, it's simply not viable to think of there being these sort of pure intellectual disciplines as opposed to the applied disciplines. I think all intellectual work is in some sense has application. Yeah, I mean, we should be aware of the vast influences on European culture of, that have come from non-European sources. I mean, that's...
1: Part of the I guess, is one sentence that cent- one you're correct that government doesn't like to fund things that makes it uncomfortable. Um, right, right. Yeah. But it probably should, because we all have good reason to be uncomfortable about many things, I think. And to think about what we're uncomfortable about and maybe do better, including our treatment of the Arab world, is a very good thing to do.
0: I think to, if there are no more questions, then I'm... There is one more question. Okay, well...
3: Just a quick one. Um, you talked a lot about work, which is great, um, and about activity, philosophy being an activity. Um, you've talked also about um, the philosopher king, a sort of idea, hasn't really got a, got a lot of legs over the years. Um, is it an opportunity to have a group of people which are very good at doing, organizing, thinking, um, all sort of meshed together. So, is there, the question to you, is there an opportunity for, uh, rather than philosopher kings, but philosopher CEOs?
2: It'd be a wonderful opportunity for me. I mean, one of the, the things that have impressed me over the years um, are sort of spontaneous groups that um, uh, sort of generate around philosophical issues. Uh, one that I had some dealings with for a while. Um, uh, was a group of psychiatrists who were interested in philosophical questions, who used to meet, I think, once a month. Um, I used to go along to, to their meetings just as a, you know, a participant, in, in no sense as a philosopher. Um, and uh, they saw these questions as eminently um, pertinent to their practice and their lives as psychiatrists. Uh, the more the better, I think. I mean...
0: Okay, thank you. I think. Uh... I'm just really pleased with the way that um, both of you have underscored some things that are less uh, regarded or not so well known in the, the public, which is that philosophy is a kind of intellectual labor, and that common sense is not necessarily always right. I think that's something that is often mis- uh, misunderstood or overlooked. and. I think that there is a need for us to think about what kind of society and what kind of individuals we want to be, and clearly philosophy plays a huge role in that. So please join me in thanking both Professor Eldridge and (laughs) Professor